I'd like to welcome you all to uh, Conscious in the Cloud. Uh, today's talk is going to be more, I guess, following the lines of a trialogue, which means that you'll have three speakers, plus you can ask audience questions as well. Um, I'm Tom Barbelay. I work at Netflix, hence the, the space. And uh, my background is in artificial life. When we were planning this talk, we were going to have a, a third speaker, Bruce Damer, and he was going to talk more about his cloud artificial life experimentation. So we're a little, we're a little light on the cloud this evening, but hopefully this will motivate you folk to uh, think about attending again and perhaps offer talks or presentations. I know there are a number of folks here who do work in the cloud and do have a cloud background. So we're certainly looking for future speakers as well. The reason that we're here this evening is because uh, KMO is in town, he's traveling through, and it was one of the uh, rare opportunities to meet KMO, so I thought I should uh, host the Conscious in the Cloud talk and uh, bring together a couple of us plus KMO to talk about some interesting topics. So my background is I started developing an artificial life project called Noble Ape in 1996. I was 19 and in Australia at the time. I was studying physics and philosophy, and I thought it was an interesting way of exploring consciousness, simulating consciousness and exploring questions in consciousness, in particular how you could simulate artificial landscapes and a rich ecosystem that the noble apes, the sentient creatures in my project, would wander through. In about 2005, I picked up the editorial duties of a site called biota.org, uh, which had historically held conferences. Larry had attended a few of them uh, historically, but my remit when I picked up the editorial duties at biota.org was to interview kind of founding folk in the field of artificial life, um, such as Larry, uh, and a number of other folk. And through that, um, there was a series of I guess, regional talks called Grey Thumb, which basically provided a backbone for the artificial life community. We have Alan Dell here who, who filmed a variety of those. But probably about two or three years ago, somewhat ironically, just before I moved to this part of the world, these talks started to trail off. So in starting the Consciousness in the Cloud talk series, I wanted to bring together folks who are cloud engineers and also people who simulated consciousness, and Larry will hopefully talk a little bit more about some of um, the stuff that he's done with Polyworld specifically in that light, in particular um, quantizing consciousness, which I think is a, a pretty interesting subject, particularly when you start to look at cloud computing. But anyway, that's me. I'm Tom Bartley, and uh, Kevin, KMO is your our guest. Would you like to introduce your background to the folks? I, uh, I once saw the amazing Randy give a presentation where he came out and there was a mic on the, on the podium, and he stood behind it, and he started talking, and he's talking to people about how they probably made some assumptions that weren't warranted, and uh, then he stepped away from the podium mic, and his voice was still amplified because he was wearing a lapel mic. <laughs> but I am wearing a lapel mic. I am KMO. Um, I'm sort of the 9-11 the to, uh, to Tom's Patriot Act in that the Patriot Act was conceived well before 9-11, but the opportunity of 9-11 uh, opened up a critical juncture. And the Patriot Act, which had been languishing, it was sort of the pent-up frustrations of those who were looking to uh, avoid the, the catastrophe of the peace dividend to uh, basically push through some, some reforms that wouldn't have gone through otherwise. So uh, I said, hey, I'm coming to town. And Tom said, hey, I've got just the venue. And by the way, it's not your presentation that you're going to be giving. We're going to do a trialogue on my subject, which I've probably had in mind for a while. 
which is okay. I'm happy to talk about it. I'm the host of the Sea Realm podcast. The C in Sea Realm stands for consciousness, so this is no great stretch for me. Um, I went to grad school in the mid-90s, and I studied the philosophy of science and the philosophy of mind. And I was very interested in what would later come to be known as the notion of a technological singularity. And I was also uh, a devotee, you might say, of Richard Dawkins. And Richard Dawkins wrote a very famous, uh, in, at least in artificial life circles, program called The Blind Watchmaker, which allowed it, it was a very simple thing. There were creatures that had just a handful of genes, I think maybe eight genes, and you would, you would get a, a sort of random variation on a, a particular creature, and you could pick one and then do another variation, you know, and get eight more, and you pick one, and you pick one, and you're, you're just gradually selecting these changes, and you would get some very, very complex shapes from this very simple algorithm and multiple repetitions, multiple iterations of just selecting the thing that, that appeals to you. And what this demonstrated was that with something very, very simple, you could over time and with iterations get something incredibly complex, but more importantly, something that the designer of the program did not intend and could not have predicted. That is not necessarily life, but it is certainly indicative. It is certainly evocative. And so that's something I'm very interested in. And when I started doing the Sea Realm podcast, I, I had the Sea Realm domain for a decade before that. So when it came time to do a podcast, when I discovered podcasts and I discovered I could do one, there was never any question as to what it would be called. It would be the Sea Realm podcast. And I thought I was going to be interviewing people like uh, Hans Moravec and, and Ray Kurzweil and uh, Werner Vinge and... Um, None of those folks returned my emails. <laughs> so I interviewed the people who did return my emails. Yeah. And the people who did return my emails, I was not only interested in technology, I was also interested in farming at the time. I was very excited about the books of Michael Pollan, and I was trying to start a small farm. And I started talking about the people about farming. And if you start talking about small farms versus big industrial agriculture, you run into the question of petroleum. We basically eat petroleum. It would be more efficient if we really could just drink it down and, and gain sustenance from it. But instead, we pour petroleum over every aspect of modern food production, from irrigation to running the big combines to um, fertilizer and then transportation. Although with all of that, still the most energy-intensive portion of the whole process of uh, a field to plate is when you cook it. So uh, for those of you who are into raw food, kudos. I like hot food myself. <laughs> so I started talking to people about petroleum, and I ran into this notion of peak oil. And the notion of peak oil is, is fairly complicated, but it can be summed up rather simply, which is just to say that oil, which is a very necessary part of our economy and which is very much tied to economic growth, is a finite, it is a finite substance eventually there will come a time when we cannot extract it as fast as we want to use it. And in terms of conventional oil, that came in 2005. Since then, we've had the expanding wedge of hope, which is the, um, the ability or the, the so far successful attempt to make up the difference between de declining crude oil production and the total demand for energy with things like well, unconventional fuels, biofuels, 
shale oil, oil shale, which are two different things, believe it or not. Um, gasified or liquefied natural gas, which you can run cars on. And slowly, not, not nearly quickly enough to, um, to really keep this mode of living going, but the electrification of things that used to depend on liquid fuel. So your Prius is out there and your, your Chevy Volts and things like that. Uh, those are a step. Oh, and driving over here, I was driving a 92 Ford Ranger with a, a camper shell on the back with Arkansas plates, dented up because it sat in a field with cows for five years and the cows just bumped up against it. I was behind this sleek red Tesla Motors something or another. It was a, it was a lovely contrast. Those two vehicles. So I started talking to people about peak oil. And at the time, my life uh, was not going so well. I had, about half a decade prior to that, a little more, uh, I had made a single phone call. And with this one phone call, I had made more money than I had made in all the rest of my life put together. Uh, That was the day that I called the brokerage and I exercised my Amazon.com stock options. And I said, exercise them, sell them all. And then I got to go and play for a good long time, didn't need a job. Uh, But then the money ran out, and I had a decade-sized hole in my CV, my my resume. And I was living in Arkansas, northwest Arkansas, not exactly a hotbed of innovation or high-tech industry or uh, economic activity at all, really. I I was there, I was trying to start a farm. And I ran out of money while building the house. I had to move to a place where there was an economy. So I moved to Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is the, uh, the place of my birth. And I was selling insurance badly, not doing it very well at all, uh, sinking deeper and deeper into debt. So I had gone from being uh, a self-described libertarian and singularitarian to a uh, disillusioned libertarian and singularitarian. I was struggling economically, not very happy with my situation, and being a human being, looking for some story which justified my position and said, this is not your fault. Something much bigger is going on here. And so I gravitated to this, this collapse narrative. So at the back of the room, you'll see I've got some, some books set up. It's Conversations on Collapse. And these are the interviews, the early Sea Realm interviews, that redirected me from the high-tech utopian mindset to a mindset of, well, things are really pretty unworkable. And I spent a good long time there. And a lot of other people who were attracted to that same narrative for a variety of reasons uh, started listening to my podcast. And now they're coming out to the, uh, the tour stops on this tour. And I think some of them are a little surprised and disappointed that I, I've backed away from that narrative now. Um, I think peak, I take peak oil seriously, but at the same time, as, as engineers know or anybody who's familiar with the laws of thermodynamics know, you can have a system which is going into entropy, which is degrading steadily, but pieces of it, pockets of it, subsystems of it can be growing and complexifying. So we get San Francisco in the Bay Area. I drove here from New York City, and in the drive across the country, I've seen some places that look like the world has ended. Places where buildings are burned down and never rebuilt, towns that have been abandoned. Uh, But then we get here to the Bay Area, and uh, I I stayed in today. We have a beautiful 14-story condo that we're staying in that overlooks the Bay. Absurd. Uh, But I I stayed home. I edited audio for a podcast. Olga went out on the town. This is Olga, by the way. She's my better half. 
She went out of the town, and when she came back, she said, I'm ready to drink the techno-utopian Kool-Aid. I love it here. This place is so livable. <laughs> yeah. New Yorker. Yeah. Hey, East Coast. Way livable in New York. So my role here is... This is how I see it. First of all, this is supposed to be an unrehearsed presentation. Put yourself in my shoes. You're going to go and you're going to stand in front of an auditorium full of people. Try not to prepare something to say. So this is what I came up with. Tom and Larry have spoken before. Tom had a podcast called Biota Live where they talked about artificial life for people who are interested in artificial life and knowledgeable on the topic. Uh, are there any writers in the room? No, there's one. Uh, aspiring writers or successful writers who are looking just to hone their craft and, and sort of draw on a new wellspring of creativity will engage in exercises called constrained writing, where you set some arbitrary limit on yourself. And you say, okay, I'm not going to use the letter E. And you try to write without using the letter E. Or you try to write without pronouns. Or you try to write without using the verb to be. That's, that's E prime. Um, and while you're, you're sort of shackling yourself, to get around that shackle, you have to engage your creativity and do things that you wouldn't do otherwise. So I think my role here is to be the constraint. These two guys can have a conversation that I can't follow and that I suspect some of you can't follow. So my role here is going to be to put the stop on that and make sure that everything is at least as accessible to me and hopefully to all of you as well. And uh, I'll, I'll indulge in a little conceit here. I can see all of you here, but I know that there will be people listening to a recording of this event, so I'm just going to imagine that there's thousands of people listening to me right now. Uh, and that's just for my own ego, but you know, we, we take it where we can. So as you can probably tell, I could stand here and gab for a while, but I think my, uh, my opening remark time is, uh, has elapsed, so Larry Yeager. I think I will let um, my little agents run around the screen and do strange things while I uh, introduce myself to you. Um, there they go. Ah, you don't need the music. Um, John Hassel. Anybody know John Hassel? Uh, my favorite composer, period. Um, so... After studying aerospace engineering um, and doing computational fluid dynamics and then going off into computer graphics land where I was able to uh, work on uh, the first motion picture to use um, CGI to replace models and miniatures, uh, use photorealistic computer graphics, the last starfighter. Um, and everywhere you see the planet Jupiter in the film 2010, that's my baby, and the the... Flying Owl, the opening title sequence of Labyrinth, was my baby. Um, but uh, th that company was around doing computer graphics for film a little too early. We went Chapter 11. We were at that stage where we'd show people a, an effect and they'd say, wow, that's really fantastic. We did Star Trek The Next Generation before it came out. We did a test of the new design of the Enterprise had a camera shot that showed somebody walking around behind a window and pulled back and back and back and back and back and back and showed the whole ship. And um, the people that looked at it were just blown away. And then they went and used models and miniatures because the CGI stuff was just too weird. Now, of course, it's everywhere. But 
While I was there, I had an opportunity to do a little side job for um, Alan Kay and the Vivarium program at Apple Computer. And computer nerds will all know Alan Kay. He's the guy who invented object-oriented programming and the language small talk. If you can imagine a time when someone had to invent those things, he invented overlapping windows. They'd been tiling the screen before that. He says, well, you've already got it kind of boxed in. Why don't you just let those things float? And, uh, and, and it's famous also for the Dyna book, which was sort of a, a white paper design for the first laptop long before there were laptops. Um, and uh, they had this idea. Alan always liked to say that uh, you, research can't have a goal. It can only have a direction. So it's, like, it's like saying, I'm, I'm going to try to design the flying buttress. Oops, done. Because oh, now I know it. I, it's the flying buttress. But um, instead, what he had the idea was he had a forcing function. In our case, it was a computational ecosystem. The idea being that uh, kindergarten through sixth graders would be able to come up to this specialized program interface and program an ecosystem in the computer. And so they'd learn about the interactions of the animals, and they'd learn about the life cycles. And, oh, by the way, they'd be programming it to do all these things. So they'd also learn those skills. And the idea was that if this system, this software, can be powerful enough to do an entire computational ecosystem and yet programmed by a fourth grader, it must be both very powerful and very simple to use. And so those were his forcing functions to do this work. I just got very interested in the computational ecology, that ecosystem in there, and what, what you could do with something like that. I had the great good fortune to go to the very first Artificial Life Conference, 87, I think it was, 87 or 88. Um, and uh, Richard Dawkins was there. Um, Chris Langton, the founder of the field, was there. Um, uh, 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 Elia, uh, let's see, um, Lyndon Meyer of L Systems fame was there. It was just an endless array of all these amazing thinkers, and it, it warped my mind for good. Um, I decided to do that I needed to do this thing and had an excuse since I was already working on computational ecosystems, theoretically. So I proposed this strange, uh, it's finished, this strange idea to Alan Kay, and he said, yeah, go for it. Um, bought a Silicon Graphics Iris 240 GTX, which was really something in the day. Uh, real actual graphics hardware built into the system. Put it in my home in Laurel Canyon, and I spent two years without getting up again um, from about 1990 to 1992 and wrote this software that you were looking at earlier uh, called Polyworld. And the idea is really, really simple. This should be easily communicable to anyone. The idea is that every example we have of an intelligent system, an intelligent organism, is, has come about through the evolution of nervous systems in an ecology. Evolution because it explores the space widely and yet produces more and more useful and more and more successful agents, op organisms. Um, nervous systems, because evolution discovered that you could put together these things that were wired together and sent pulses to each other, and it worked really, really well for encoding information about the environment. And ecosystem, because all that nice, lovely smarts isn't worth anything 
unless it helps the agent survive and reproduce in the context in which it lives, its ecosystem. So I put all those three key ingredients together in a piece of software and have these artificial agents that evolve neural network topologies, the design of the network of their brains, and uh, that have to uh, survive and reproduce in this environment. And what you were looking at before was uh, the, the food was appearing sort of optimally difficult to get to down these channels with barriers separating it that the agents could not see over. Um, and in fact, what it would do is it would basically random, unless it looked around and saw that there were a bunch of agents down one thing, it would guarantee it wouldn't go there. It would go to the one with the least number of agents. Uh, and so it was moving the food around. And they actually evolved a solution to come up and hang up near the top and look down the three channels, and when the food appeared, rush towards it and get some food before it went away again so that they come back up and reproduce. But then I made it even harder for them. I said, okay, you can do that, but you can't eat the food while you're moving, and you can't reproduce while you're moving. You have to go sit in front of it, eat it, and then come back. So it forced them to exercise a lot of control over their behaviors, and they solved it with no problem. Actually, almost everything I've ever uh, confronted them with uh, a, a useful, understandable uh, solution has evolved. There's another one that has uh, I've evolved them to feed their young, um, which uh, we, we take for granted, but um, in these agents, giving away energy is pretty much a bad thing for you because now your energy is depleted, and if that energy goes to zero, you die. Um, but by structuring the world a little bit, um, and giving them time to evolve these things, um, I had it so that basically by the end of the simulation, they, they were not able to eat until something like four or 500 time steps into their life, and they would have run out of food after, I don't know, 50. Um, so the, they had to evolve a solution that involved the, the older agents feeding the younger agents in order for the population to persist and survive. Oh, I guess I'll say one more thing about this line of research um, that Tom specifically brought up, which is that uh, that's all neat. And actually, when I started this project, my goal was to see just how far I could push it because I just found the whole subject area interesting. But then I entered academia and discovered, mm, but I also need to like produce quantifiable scientific evidence. And actually, I mean, I'd had some of these ideas right from the outset. The very first paper on Polyworld uh, from the 1992 ALI3 conference that, that actually appeared in print in 94 because the, the, the editor was a little slow getting stuff out. Um, uh, I speculated in the end about if we just had some information theoretic way to look at the dynamics over different scales of these neural computations going on in their brains, maybe we could find some threshold above which we're willing to say they're alive. I was at, trying to answer the question, are they alive or not? And um, it's, it's, it's a hard question. Um, the people have come up with things like, well, actually one of the most popular is it, it squishes when you step on it. <laughs> but um, people have tried to come up with like a laundry list uh, criteria. Farmer in Berlin in the 8Life2 conference came up with this idea of a whole bunch of things that if it satisfies all these, well, then maybe you'd call it alive. But the thing is, I could argue that the agents in Polyworld satisfy all those already, satisfied them in 1992. And um, I don't think that means that they're alive. I think, uh, not necessarily anyway, I think it means we need a better definition of life. 
Um, well, one possible way is this idea that things are obviously have become more complex over evolutionary timescales. Um, yeah, that's not to say, I mean, you have to understand that a cockroach is every bit as adapted to its environment as we are to ours, perhaps more so. But you wouldn't argue that it's equally complex to a human being. And um, the, uh, if you had a way to measure that complexity, you might could say that, well, anything above you know, 0.003, you'd have to start calling alive. Um, and so I, it turns out that in the same year that my first paper came out and speculating about this stuff, a fellow who became a, a colleague at Indiana University had come out with exactly what I was looking for, uh, what they call TSE complexity or neural complexity, uh, TSE for Tononi, Sporns, Edelman, the authors of this paper. Um, and the idea is, again, simple in principle, a little hard to compute, but, but basically the idea is that all of our brains, in order to be complex, actually any complex system, not just brains, but, but especially brains, need this trade-off. They need to have cooperation amongst the elements of the brain, and they call that integration. Okay? But it also has to have specialization of components at different scales. They call that segregation. So it has to have both integration and segregation in high degree to have a really complex system. And those things are naturally kind of fighting each other, and yet you need both of them. It's an interesting thing, and they came up with an information-theoretic way to measure this directly. It's hard to do in wet brains, but by gosh, in an artificial life system, you just record the activation of every neuron at every time step for every agent in the simulation over the entire evolutionary run. Done. It's a lot of disk space, but you do it, and then you go back afterwards and you can compute all these things. And one thing I've been looking at is the ability to say how evolution drives complexity growth. And in fact, it does. During periods when those agents are adapting to their world, they need to get more complex dynamics of their brain, and evolution will actively drive the complexity up. Then it turns out a good enough solution comes along, and evolution will say, okay, cool, we'll stick with that for a while, and it actually kind of stabilizes it, and com complexity is going up and up and up and up, and then it kind of plateaus like this, but then you get punctuated equilibrium. Well, after a while, uh, an even better solution, and, and enough better solution comes along, and it'll pop up again, and complexity will rise again. And you can quantify this stuff. So we're you know, actually trying to get close to the ability to say what it means to have complex neural dynamics, be able to measure it, quantify it, and talk about how far we can get with our evolutionary systems. So another paper. Another favorite part of Larry's work that I've referred to quite a bit is the idea of the IOU when you write artificial life simulations. And certainly developing Noble Ape, I came to it with a slightly different neuron-like model to basically explore the same kind of problems that Larry was looking at. In addition to this, I met a computational roboticist called Bob Mottram who introduced me to social robotics and also was very interested in language. So the IOU that we've written currently in Noble Ape is that we will find a way with the uh, cognitive simulation that was developed to actually evolve language, but there's a lot of interesting stuff that goes on with language uh, as well, particularly when you get communication about food uh, locations and also just random gossip, which seems to actually be a large part of the communications of the noble apes. 
One of the things that interests me is the idea of the cloud with regards to artificial life simulation. Kamo, you gave a beautifully succinct definition of the cloud. What Tom is referring to is uh, he and I were on uh, Eric Davis's radio program slash podcast, Expanding Mind, last week. And uh, I was saying that the topic here is consciousness in the cloud or artificial life in the cloud. And I think that, that Tom and Larry, rightly so, are focusing on the artificial life portion of it. And what drew my attention was the cloud portion. What does the cloud mean? I think just sort of at a first blush, the cloud means that either our storage or our computation is not taking place locally, but it's off someplace else. So, you know, we do something on our local machine, but really it's, it's stored or it's processed on a server that is remote. Uh, but that's not all that the cloud is, because the Internet really is a variety of things. It, it's a bunch of things that all come together under this one heading. So, you know, it was, it was ARPANET or DARPANET and maybe uh, various bulletin board systems and, and Usenet and uh, email, of course, and, um, oh, listserv discussion groups, you know, facilitated by email. And then there was AOL and CompuServe and all of these different things, which were separate but connected we called them the internet. And it was sort of a Wild West sort of thing uh, in early days. But then in the mid-90s, quietly, the internet got privatized. And it was in the late 90s, and I, I forget who, but somebody first mentioned uh, the term the cloud, computing in the cloud. And the cloud has come to be basically a, a very, if, if the internet is, say, Lagos, Nigeria, the cloud is Singapore. The cloud is locked down. The cloud is orderly. Uh, you have, in, in various cloud services, a, uh, a user agreement that is long and that you've never read, and you, you couldn't be bothered to read it. But at any time, the owner of that particular piece of cloud can say, you're in violation of that user agreement, and you're cut off. And you might ask, well, how did I violate the user agreement? And they don't have to tell you. Because... While the Internet was never a democracy, for a time it was sort of a, an emergent social anarchy, a sort of uh, collective syndicalist, you know, tribal sort of thing, where you had animosities, you had antagonisms, but you didn't have enough central order to basically lay down the law, like Apple can lay down the law, or Google can lay down the law. I won't say anything about Netflix, of course, but, um, or, I'm sorry, let me take back Google as well. We'll, we'll say Apple... And Facebook, those evil corporations, can lay down the law like this. And so my, what I was wondering is, what are the implications of artificial life or consciousness? And I'm, I'm more concerned with consciousness because artificial life, you know, what is alive, what is not alive? Well, I think we can all agree cows are alive, right? And I'm not a vegetarian. I'm not here to chide anybody. I eat meat. Uh, but we kill cows for our convenience, for our pleasure, I don't think there's anybody in the room who would insist we can't live without hamburgers. We can't live without beef stroganoff. We like these things. So we kill cows. So, sure, maybe some, some artificial entity, some embodiment of an algorithm out there in the cloud satisfies various criteria for being alive. So what? We're still going to do with it as we see fit. But what if somebody makes a convincing argument that it's conscious, that it's alive, not just alive, but it, it's conscious, it's self-reflective, it has feelings, it has interiority, it has subjectivity. It has 
all the things about ourselves that we hope get preserved, whether, you know, in the afterlife, if you believe that, or if you're looking for embodied immortality via transhumanist dreams, there are certain things about yourself you care about. There are certain things that you are willing to part with. So I've got a, a toenail that's getting thick and kind of ugly, and I'm willing to part with that. You know, that's not an essential part of KMO. But my memories, my feelings towards certain people, my feelings about creativity and community and consciousness and cognition and other words that start with C, these, I think, are, are fundamental, and I want to preserve them. So my, my question, I guess, for both Tom and Larry is, in the cloud, if something is conscious, whatever that means, what do we owe it? And if we suppose we, we treat the things that we judge as being conscious in the cloud as human, but then we look around into human society and we see that all humans are not created equal. Some humans have it really well. Some humans have it really good. Some humans have it really bad. And some humans insist that they have it really good, even though they are really tied up in knots inside and really resent the way that they get used, but they're not going to let on because they're still hoping to climb the ladder. If you exist in a particular kind of cloud, the sort of cloud where there is a user agreement that's in a language you don't speak and you supposedly agreed to it because if you didn't, you would, would not exist, but you're told that you violated this agreement and it is not incumbent upon the agreement holder to tell you how you violate it. All they have to say is what punishment you must endure or how much you have to pay back before you're square with the boss again, before you're even with the company store. If, if we build things that really are self-aware, they really are complex enough that you just cannot countenance treating them the way we treat, say, beef cattle, then what is the implication of the fact that they are realized in a cloud that is not a democracy, the rules of which are not even explicit, at least not to outsiders? I don't have an answer to that question. It's just something that sends a little chill up my spine when I consider that the answer to that question might be answered in the boardrooms of corporations whose only existence, whose only purpose in existence is to maximize shareholder value. So I'll just leave it there. So many parts. Yes. So I've run the Noble Ape simulation for more than 17 years, and I get emails frequently from users. And some of the users have very interesting relationships with the Noble Apes. Recently, I was contacted by a fellow in Germany who's run the Noble Ape simulation for tens of thousands of simulated years. He's catalogued family trees and a wide variety of quite interesting phenomena through the simulation. And he said to me that he was out swimming with his family and he thought to himself, do the Noble Apes experience water? When they swim in the water, are they having the same pleasure that I'm having swimming with my family? And what happens when a user drowns a noble ape or when a noble ape drowns? And what happens with noble apes mourning? And what are their relationships with their family structures? Because obviously they talk about family members and, you know, we can track this through the simulation. And primarily because he was talking to me as opposed to email correspondence, it really gave me pause for thought about 
the way these simulated entities exist. They don't necessarily exist this way for the creator, but certainly for the folks that are using the simulation, they can get those kind of experiences. Now, we are, from an artificial life perspective, an open source, publicly accessible, currently talking at, a, at an open talk, far behind whatever is going on uh, potentially associated with the descriptions within the NSA, maybe stuff that's going on at Amazon, maybe stuff that's going on at Google that I don't know about. But in terms of artificial life simulators, um, we are very early days in terms of our use of the cloud. But with folks such as Larry, who have done work linking simulated entities with human brains and variables that track uh, both of those things, we have a very interesting experience ahead of us because... We can take our simulations that we've developed for tens, well, tens of years and put them in environments where they are no longer limited by computation, by memory usage, by processor usage. Noble has been used by both Apple and Intel um, for tracking processor metrics. And they were very much obsessed with, you know, N core processes, where they increased the number of core processes and they wanted to work out the number of eight brain cycles per second, which is the metric that a couple of engineers at Apple came up with. And the interesting thing through that process was that they were dealing with individual computers. They weren't dealing with clusters of computers. They weren't dealing with the cloud, fundamentally. But even through that, they could create really interesting metrics and I think the thing that interests me as an artificial life simulator, particularly looking at the potential of the cloud, is that I can take aspects of Noble Ape, aspects of the simulation, aspects of the consciousness simulation, the language simulation, and move it over potentially thousands of processes with virtually limitless amounts of memory. And the thing that interests me, that one of the questions I wanted to ask Larry, is associated with Polyworld in the cloud. I've not followed the recent um, developments of Polyworld. I follow it on, uh, I think, GitHub, I'm not sure who's maintaining it currently. Virgil Griffiths was maintaining it for a period of time. But I'm interested in hearing from Larry associated with what he thinks the potential taking a simulation like Polyworld and removing some of the prior constraints associated with processes, associated with memory, those kind of things, and, and what you see the expansion as being. It has actually been run on a, a, a large cluster. And that's still not exactly cloud computing, but... Um, there, there were some constraints on, on Polyworld that uh, it, it needed a, a monitor and, and other things like that. We've kind of beat all those down so that you can deploy it on a, on a large uh, cluster of machines. Uh, it takes another... I've done a lot of thinking about, okay, uh, A-Life at Home um, uh, version for, for Polyworld. And it, it becomes difficult... If you want your agents to be able to interact with each other, and that's kind of, they're the most important part of the environment, really, is all those other agents. Uh, uh, you have to manage a lot of communication back and forth between machines or with a centralized server or something. And, and it's a real challenge to make it uh, run truly out in the cloud. Um, although there's the other version of the cloud, which is just basically, uh, it's a lot of, a lot of, Compute power, and there that's not that's not terribly different than a cluster of machines, and and uh, you could probably throw it at that today with just a little bit of work. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of the ethics questions, have you had users approach you? I mean, a young Virgil Griffiths or someone like that who's come to you and said these things have rights because they exist, they feed, they have families, all these kind of things, and when I turn off the computer and they all go away, it has an emotional impact on me. 
The people ask this question, yes. Um, so far, especially perhaps being the guy who wrote every line of that code initially, I, I don't really have a, 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 any problem turning it off. I, I just don't. Uh, I, I don't think they're alive by any useful... St- I, I, well, even... Again, I, I, I think alive is a tricky term. Um, I think that a, calling something alive is really just a convenient... Um, uh, shortcut for us uh, that we 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 can we we know what it looks like we can talk about it but um, you know is a virus alive um, you take a tobacco mosaic virus you can break it down into, into its constituent um, uh, acids amino acids and stuff put them each in a separate jar on a shelf go away for three months come back put them together, and it will reassemble into the original virus and go on with its life cycle. Um, is that alive? Eh. I think that you reach, get above a certain level of complexity, and we just all kind of agree. We'll, we'll, we'll call that alive. And even then, we make value judgments. Uh, you were talking, KMO was talking about uh, we sacrifice cows for our pleasure. Um, and uh, I also am an omnivore. Uh, I was evolved that way. I figure we're all going to be eaten. I'm going to be eaten someday, even if it's just by bacteria. So I'm kind of on the food chain. No, no, no choice in the matter. Um, and we make a value judgment that the degree of life, I mean, people aren't used to thinking in terms of degrees of life. It's either alive or it isn't. But actually, I think degrees of life is a pretty good way to think about the issue. Um, and this business that I've been doing with quantifying intelligence or quantifying neural complexity smacks a lot of quantifying intelligence, which to me conflates on purpose with quantifying degree of life. Um, so I think there's a, actually a useful concept there that we can think about just how alive something is, not just whether it is or isn't alive. And we're going to be drawing lines in the sand saying that above this level, you have to treat it differently than below that level. I think all of our stuff below that level at the moment. Um, I have no doubt it will get above that level someday. Uh, and when, when my machine talks back to me and tells me things that I didn't expect it to say, um, that, you know, show that it has self-awareness, introspection, and uh, the ability to draw its own conclusions about the world, then I will not turn it off. Or if I do, it will only be because I have an absolutely perfect copy and I can get it over on this other machine that I don't have to turn off. That's one nice thing about being a software uh, agent is that you, there at least is the hope that you can have an absolutely perfect copy and just take it over here and run it over there. And uh, you, you might have a little, you know, a, a, a blackout <laughs> for a moment, but other than that, won't even know that it happened. So... so- if you establish various tiers and you establish a tier which moves it into a realm that you would call intelligent, and then somewhere through that realm, I'm assuming you exist as well. Well, beyond in just intelligent. I think, I think my agents are already somewhat intelligent. Okay. But go ahead. So go ahead. with the respect that you will think twice before you kill them. Right. Then what happens when you reach things that are above your own intelligence? How do you, how do you gauge this? As it then I hope it doesn't up? turn me off. <laughs> so, do you feel that there are certain systems that already exist, things like the financial system, which could fundamentally turn us off in certain 
cases. And do you quantify that with a greater degree of intelligence than yourself? Uh, no. I, I haven't heard any great deal of introspection coming from the stock market. Okay. So the quality of introspection basically creates your limits in this description. I, I do. Self-awareness is an important aspect of this. Okay. But you have to judge the self-awareness. It's True. not judged by the system. So the stock market well, could I'm, be self-aware internally within itself. It's just to do with your judgment associated with the stock market that moves it in that direction. The, the, it's true that I'm making a value judgment. I'm deciding that the stock market is, isn't self-aware. But uh, I think that's one of those things that, you know, claiming something is self-aware requires some degree of evidence. Uh, well, evidence that you'd respect versus the stock market respecting the evidence of it being self-aware. Some degree that... that we as a, as, a, as a community of self-aware agents have to respect. Okay. So clearly there are people that have that level of respect for the stock market associated with its self-awareness and its maintenance. I believe so. I believe so. What do you even call it? I mean, this is the stock market right here. We engage with it. It doesn't have a boundary. The stock market makes sense, right? So... We learn here, we go and we relate to the stock market I think the complexity of the stock market is, in fact, driven by exactly it's us that's driving the, the complexity there. It's a founded thing, like when you talk about your simulation, which is so stuck on that. Well, I think it's bounded. I mean, it doesn't come in. We don't influence that simulation. And, and these simulate which one? The Polyworld? <laughs> yeah, no, we don't influence that. They only influence it themselves. Well, I set certain parameters, so I suppose I do influence it in, in a way. I don't interact with them routinely. So we're moving perfectly to the audience question portion of the... Uh, are there any questions? A primary question is, how do you define consciousness? That's a very difficult question. I think... I'm sure you've all heard of artificial intelligence. And there certainly is artificial intelligence existing in the world today. Uh, I think what's important is, is another... Uh, another letter to put into that acronym, and that's a G, Artificial General Intelligence. So there are trading algorithms in the stock market that can perform calculations and can perform actions much more complex and much more quickly than any human brain could. But as, as Larry says, they're not self-aware. They don't ask why. They, uh, they certainly don't write poetry. They're not afraid of death. Um, they have no concept of death. They have no concept of self. So what is consciousness? The sorts of consciousness that I'm interested in, particularly when it comes to treating artificial life and artificial intelligence ethically, uh, is it has to have a sense of self. It has to have some notion of its, itself as separate from its environment and separate from other agents. Uh, it has to fear pain. It has to, it has to be averse to something. If it feels no pain, if it feels no fear, if nothing you do to it causes it any concern whatsoever, then you don't really, I don't think, and this is my ethical intuition, that you, you don't owe a lot to it. You don't owe it good treatment. Um, my, my concern is that I, I very much agree with what Larry said, that all of the sorts of artificial intelligence and artificial life, at least that I know about, are well below the level of complexity where we have to worry about their rights. And I don't think that the noble apes really know what it feels like to be wet. And I don't think they know the grief of a child drowning. Um, that's an intuition, and, and you might have an argument to the contrary. But 
if my concern is this, our intuition about what constitutes enough complexity to be considered alive is uh, if I say something funny, you laugh. If I make eye contact, you make eye contact back. Um, if, if I say something and you react in a certain way that I judge, oh, your feelings have been hurt, and I'm, I'm now scrambling for some way to reframe what I've just said so it's not as painful, these are all intuitive indicators that I'm dealing with a general intelligence. But what if the eye contact thing doesn't work because this thing doesn't have eyes? And what if it doesn't laugh at my jokes because it doesn't have lungs and it doesn't have the sort of psychology that is the product of evolution in, a, you know, as a social primate with uh, your chief concern really being your position in the eyes of your fellow beings because your survival is linked with their survival and your intelligence and your ability to survive in the environment is, is emergent from the cooperation that is just part of your genetic, uh, your makeup, you know, what what has been gifted to you by, nat by natural selection. What if the thing that we're talking about is well above the level of complexity where we should consider its ends, but it's so different from us that we don't recognize it? It doesn't trigger any of our intuitive notions about what is a living, sentient being that is deserving of good treatment then we could well be, with good intentions and with a clear conscience, be inflicting great suffering and hardship on perhaps billions of entities. That, I, I don't know how to prevent it. I don't even know how to detect it. But it is certainly a concern. Somehow I knew that I was going to be painted into a corner and the anthropomorphic divide would be somewhere around there. When I lived in Las Vegas, I had the opportunity to meet a couple of people who do write uh, stock market programs. And the notion of, and are very, very, very wealthy because of it. And a number of folk in the artificial life community have kind of dabbled in this area as well, um, some more successfully than others. But the thing that's very curious associated with creating artificial life-based or at least artificial life-inspired stock market tracking programs is that they are aware of their own interaction with the environment. They have to be. Because basically, if they're dealing with the quantity of shares that would make someone a lot of money, they have to be able to see the reaction, counter-reaction associated with it. A uh, counter-example to the humor point as well, just living in the UK for a period of time, you realize that certain jokes that fly here won't fly elsewhere. And I'm certainly very mindful that humor is more than just something that um, you know all humans can be used to be tested on. It's, in fact, very complicated and quite interesting in and of itself. But I think the definitions of consciousness that have been described here, in particular the notion of self-reflection, are relatively weak against the scrutiny of some of the simulation software that is used or has to be used to interact with environments like the stock market. And certainly I reflect on the meetings I've had with people who do write this kind of software and they are very, very aware of this as a concept when they create the software and have written quite extensively on this as well. But it's a very interesting field to, uh, to bring in. And they do, of this, of this couple that I met, come to the Bay Area periodically. And I would certainly love to bring them to this venue to talk more about their uh, simulations if they want to enter this kind of forum. But yeah, very, very interesting. Any other questions? Can I say something about certainly. that before we move on? I just... I, be careful of the word aware. Um, 
I think there's a classic uh, AI, A-Life story that shows how you were misusing it. Um, the, when people were trying to figure out how do you define something as alive, one of the first definitions that people come up with is, well, it's something that senses its environment and responds to it. It and then to its interaction with the environment as well. Uh-huh. And then some wag says, yeah, my thermometer does that. My, my thermostat does that. Excuse me, my thermostat does that. And um, to, in the, it, a thermostat is aware of its environment in exactly the same way that that stock market program is aware of share price. It's, it has some way of sensing it. That's absolutely true. But when we're talking about awareness, especially self-awareness, we're talking about the ability to reflect upon that measurement. And I don't think the stock market, any stock market program has that. It would have to, because its interaction with the environment is not like the thermostat, where it's purely self-regulating. Its interaction can also have the feedback, which is very negative. It's not like just raising a temperature. It's interacting with something that has both raising and lowering characteristics. A thermostat deals with raising and lowering the temperature, and if it goes too far, it turns around and goes the other way. But that is through relatively interpretable characteristics, whereas the stock market program in terms of its... Ah, but now all you're saying is that because it's more complex than you can easily grasp, it's therefore aware, self-aware? I don't think so. So what are you saying specifically associated with self-awareness? There has to be some mechanism um, for the, the, the agent in question to, uh, unfortunately, I just fall back on more words that are saying the same thing, reflect upon, uh, uh, internally uh, imagine. Uh, self-concept. A self-concept. Yeah, I, I, I don't for a moment think that that software has a self-concept and awareness of itself. I'd like, yes. I'd like to offer... But I, I'm willing to just stop arguing about it. And, one little and piece, move on to and then questions. acknowledge that somebody has the mic, or yeah. you know, like the conch in uh, Lord of the Flies. Um, I think that what I'm getting from you, and this is just my my attempt to offer you a different way to to phrase it, is that an entity not only has to be sensitive to changes in its, in its environment and have responses to those changes, but it has to care. And I don't know that the stock market trading algorithms care. I think they just do what they're programmed well, to do. If they don't care, then they don't get used. But, but the, what the only caring that is there is programmed in so that they try to make money on the sales. Right. Let's, let's acknowledge the person with the mic. <laughs> um, do you really see a uh, social ecosystem of peers as necessary for evolution? Because it seems that if you do program a whole bunch of different peers, you are util- uh, using up the uh, amount of computational power you have in a cloud. So wouldn't it be more useful just to have a single entity? Uh, because that does seem to be our limiting barrier, our boundary, right? It's an interesting question. I mean, and, and there are people, uh, Cynthia Brazil, um, yes, uh, who, uh, who basically has the notion that you just create one really, really good learning robot, and by design you make it as cute as humanly possible, and then you get people to train it. You get people to raise it like an infant, and, um, and it will become smarter and smarter and smarter. And that's certainly another way to approach it. I wouldn't say that, that anyone, no one way has fully succeeded yet, so we don't know the best way. Uh, I happen to think evolving it in an ecosystem is one attractive way. Honestly, we've made so much progress just within the last decade at slicing up cortexes 
and uh, pulling out the underlying full, complete structure um, and building models on this stuff that we are, it's entirely possible, uh, I think, that we will get to a brain in a box um, by basically um, modeling, measuring, modeling, and emulating um, real physical brains before I can successfully evolve one of that level of complexity. So I'm not, I'm not trying to convince anybody else to do this. I'm just saying, here's what I did, here's why. And uh, it's an interesting approach, but there are lots of interesting approaches. Let me just say, you have an excellent voice. So in your program, the, the robots they, or the, 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 your entities, you have set a, a goal for them to eat the food, and they, they're trying to go to that goal. Do, do you think there is a, um, a cloud like AI that sort of explores its, its environments without any goals set by the programmer? And can this be used to sort of have the cloud do research instead of humans doing research and publishing papers? Well, let me clarify one thing. I mean, to a certain extent, you're right. It's just that I don't actually, there's no rules built into the agents about rule, about food seeking. Uh, it's just that if they, they use energy just by living and by all their actions and by the activity of their brains. So if they don't go replenish it somehow, they'll run out of energy, they'll die, and they won't make offspring. That's why it's, all that's going on here is honest-to-goodness natural selection in the computer. It's the amplification of valuable traits. That's all that's going on. There is no goal to eat food. It's just the fact that if they don't eat food, they won't make many babies, and so they won't be as represented in the next round of the population um, as the ones who did go eat food. And so they will make more babies, and they will make babies that eat food because they're like their parents, and so on and so on. So there's, there's nothing... There's no rules about going and eating food. Um, that said, uh, if we could make cloud agents that really, really needed um, facts, factoids, bits of knowledge in but, order to uh, survive a, and reproduce. But there's a goal to be alive then, no? Well, there's not even a goal to be alive. It's just that if you're not alive... Your offspring aren't alive, <laughs> and yeah, there, there's absolutely nothing driving them to, to even live. The question we try to answer today is: um, Do we have to show compassion to these uh, possible intelligences in the in the, in the cloud? Yeah. So uh, I had a thought on this. That is, um, as human beings, uh, we have stuff we call alive and worthy of compassion, and stuff that is not alive and inanimate, so he's not worthy of compassion. But let's take a case. I have a laptop in my bag, and I take very good care of that. And as far as I know, it's not conscious. Right? And, uh, um, and there's a cow in a farm, and I kill it to eat it. And I would say it's uh, somewhat aware. And uh, if I'm waging war in a different country as a soldier, I'd go and kill a fully sentient uh, human being on the other side. So doesn't it tell us that uh, it doesn't matter if you're sentient or not? Uh, it's a matter of is it useful to me or not, right? That, that's one thing. And uh, another scenario is if we meet uh, an alien species that is uh, far more intelligent than us and they're bent on destroying us, would we not destroy them? Would we not make an attempt to destroy them? So isn't the question then uh, that it is irrelevant if it's sentient or not, but uh, it's relevant that it's useful to us or not? I'll start. 
I, I, I think it's very relevant that it's sentient or not, right up until it's trying to kill you, and then self-defense is perfectly reasonable. Um, no? Well, a lot of ethics there, a lot of deep ethical questions. One might argue that uh, war is unethical, that it is, uh, it is not a behavior that we engage in uh, that is within the bounds of, you know, of what is ethical. It could well be that, well, I, I certainly agree that if something is trying to kill you, then self-defense kicks in and, you know, you have a right to self-preservation. But typically, uh, somebody who is, say, living in Kansas, just graduated from high school, um, and they can't find a job, and so they, they enlist in the military, and they're sent overseas, and then they get into a situation where, you know, there's shooting going on, and there's somebody else trying to kill them. Well, that doesn't seem like a clear-cut case of self-defense to me. Um, so there's, there's something called the naturalistic fallacy, which is to say that if something is natural, if it occurs in nature, then it is therefore good. War is, it's existent. We see it. It is a constant in human history. Therefore, you know, we can, we can just appeal to it and say, look, here in war, here is a situation where we kill something that we know is ethically, or which is uh, sufficiently complex that we, we owe it some sort of consideration. But because people have been doing this forever, then, you know, it is justifiable, it is, it is something that is okay, and so we can take this precedent into this other arena of artificial life or artificial intelligence and say, look, we kill over here, so why can't we kill over here? Um, and I think we really should re-examine, you know, the whole picture and say, well, yes, we, we have been killing over here in these circumstances, but we've often entered these circumstances quite voluntarily, and it's not self-defense. So maybe we shouldn't take this over here as a fixed referent and apply it elsewhere. Maybe we should uh, just be more open. My concern about treating artificial life well, there's, there's two sort of polarized possibilities. One is that you create something that's really cute. It's got big, shiny eyes. It smiles. It's attentive to your body language, and uh, you are you are just very naturally treated with consideration. It may have no self-awareness whatsoever. It may have no interior life at all. It may be as, as close to alive as your laptop there, but you treat it as if it is a child or a puppy or a kitten. And then you could have something which is a box on wheels and has a crab-like manipulator arm but it has a rich interior life and it has aspirations and it has hopes and it has exquisite sensitivities and feelings, but it can't communicate them to you because it doesn't have eyebrows and it doesn't have a voice and it can absolutely detest the work that it is put to. And which is worse, that we treat something that has no interior life as if it did or we treat something that has an interior life as if it didn't? And that's a rhetorical question, I think. The latter is certainly something to be avoided. And so I think we, we need to err on the side of caution when it comes to treating things well. But at the same time, Tom is prepared to say that the noble apes, his, you know, the critters in his simulation, deserve a certain level of uh, consideration. And my intuition is that they don't, but I don't trust my intuition. Because my intuition is, is very specific to my genetic evolutionary lineage. 
when I lived in the UK, I looked out over a medieval battlefield and it affected me very greatly because I thought about, and it went back actually to the Bronze Age, it went back well past um, those times. And I thought just about the number of humans that had gotten into conflict and had lost limbs, potentially even lost their lives. There was a burial ground and a bog a bit further up. And it struck me very strongly that war and these kind of phenomena would have to be somewhere in the artificial life simulation that I created. I'm not sure, in Polyworld, do the, do the sea monkeys attack one another in certain circumstances? And that is what my wife dubbed them, the sea monkeys, by the <laughs> way. Uh, although technically they're C++ monkeys. But... Um, uh, they, they, they are built in from the beginning is the ability to attack another agent. Um, uh, it, it, when an agent attacks another, they have to be co-located in the same space. It has to express that behavior, and um, it will uh, remove some energy from the agent being attacked. Um, and I've tried to balance those things with size and, and uh, strength, genetic strength and so on. Um, but, uh, and in fact, I've even had someone come to me and tell me that I should absolutely uh, build in rape. And I, I, I understand the sentiment that it's possible right now both agents have to express their mating behavior in order to produce offspring. But there certainly is nothing unbiological about having one of the agents come up and force that mating event upon the other. Um, and it does cost energy to produce. And there's no trauma like like rape, but um, the, there nonetheless takes energy from the, the uh, other agent to produce the offspring. So, um, and I just sort of haven't been able to make myself build that in. <laughs> it's interesting because you're attributing existential respect in doing that in some regard, aren't you? I am saying I don't even want to model that, even if I don't believe for a moment that there's any trauma, that there's anything remotely resembling uh, the effects of, of rape in our society. Nonetheless, I'm not going to go there. I was going to bring up the original distinction, which I think is really a foundation for this discussion, the, the idea of the thermometer, which um, its capacity to adjust its temperature is, uh, comes from the exterior programmer, mm. designer, or builds a device. And then you have a second. I think these three things are... are distinct, quite different. So the second is the interiority that you're talking about of the individual localized interiority. But the third really interesting category, which is again different, is um, the, the crowd or the, the collective, um, which is not ex uh, pre-programmed by any exterior designer. I mean, it has interiority of a in a certain sense, as well, and so the question is, how do you make that distinction? Because I think um, there are um, a lot of ways in which life is a is a crowd, a collective that decided to work together, and then there are um, the the uh, rebels that spin off and create cancers. And um, uh, uh, there's a real analogy between uh, uh, collective intelligence and uh, the, uh, a single intelligent entity. As I understand it, the, the question is, um, it, it has to do with, with emergent behaviors in, in crowds and emergent characteristics and properties. Emergence and co toward coherence, yes. Toward coherence. 
Say more about what you mean by towards coherence. Well, um, there's been mention of this whole idea of the distinction between goal-directed behavior, and we're kind of stuck in an AI paradigm where, you know, reducing the difference between the present state and the goal state. And what I think is really fascinating about life is evolution has no goals, right? But there is a directedness um, and a very specific um, capacity to move from the present toward a solution toward, to a particular adaptive requirement of an ecosystem, right? And I think crowds are interesting from that same perspective. I think you have to be really careful what you mean by directedness, because you're imposing your perception of directedness on something else. Well, okay, so let's look at locusts. Locusts all move in the same direction. But if you look at why locusts all move in the same direction, it's about population density. When you put so many locusts in a box they start to eat each other. And when you get really dense populations of locusts, they're all moving in the same direction because they're running away from the guy behind them. That's, that's something completely different than a direction. So anthropologically speaking, you have to be careful about imposing what you perceive onto something that is not you. And I think artificial intelligence, it's not human. It's mimicking, but it's very alien. Directedness of evolution in any sense is a very big subject and, and controversial. Um, there are people who have argued quite effectively, Gould, Stephen Jay Gould, Stephen Jay Gould has um, argued that all the complexity that we see around us, including each and every one of us, is not the result of an evolution towards more complexity. It's the result of a random walk away from a brick wall of lowest complexity. It's like you get down to a single-celled organism and it, it can't really get any simpler, um, but, or, and we, we wouldn't call it alive anymore. So then you go a million years and you have a little hump here of how far out complexity has gotten just by randomly walking around. And then you go, a billion years, and it's, it's a quite a bit farther along, and you go four billion years, and it's, and it's, and it's us. And the, the paleobiological record kind of doesn't weigh in for or against this idea exactly. It could very well be explained still by this purely random walk, and there are some simulations that a guy named McShea has been doing his entire professional career that support the idea. I think there are some fundamental flaws in McShea's work. I think there have been an equal number of really brilliant names saying that, uh, no, 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 evolution is always driven. In fact, there was an ongoing big debate between Richard Dawkins and Stephen Jay Gould about this whole subject area. And the stuff that I've been doing with my simulation work suggests to me that they're both right. Or at least Dawkins is definitely right. And... Um, it's possible that Gould is right. The idea, though, is the difference is scale. At the level of the individual and the species, evolution always does have something to say. It can drive towards complexity if complexity is needed for that agent to survive better and reproduce better. The, the agent that is more complex will produce more offspring. It's not that evolution is directed. It's just that more complexity equals more offspring. So therefore, there's a kind of this evolutionary pressure towards complexity. But we know, 
that uh, organisms will evolve towards lower complexity. The way um, snakes and uh, fish and so on give up their eyes in uh, in a dark in a cave, where they're spending metabolic energy for a resource that they can't use, and they will evolve to not have them. Um, so complexity will go down, and we also know uh, that that a good enough solution will kind of have evolution provide this sort of weak stabilizing force, not better or worse. Now, the thing is, you take an entire ecosystem, an entire biosphere of some things getting more complex, some things getting less complex, some things being stabilized, and it can look an awful lot like a random walk um, with no overarching bias towards more complexity. At that level, it might look a lot more like the random walk of Stephen Jay Gould. So it's a, it's a, it's a big, huge question. I don't know if I dare add one more thing in here, but there's a third big name, Mark Kirshner and John Gerhardt at UC Berkeley. Mark Kirshner, Chair of Systems Biology at Harvard, and their theory of facilitated variation, which um, is definitely counter, uh, counter to uh, Dawkins. But it is the idea that we really need to bring the evolutionary mechanisms together with the developmental mechanisms and to understand that it's not it's not simply um, evolution isn't simply iterating at the birth and death of organisms but the entire lifespan of every organism where that organism is making it is navigating its life path through its ecosystem trying to survive that plays a huge role in evolution, and that's happening at all levels, not just the organismic level, but the cellular level, every, every level. of There's a whole field called evo-devo. But anyway, it's huge. Evolution and development that, that addresses those. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does bring to mind an idea. I don't know if it's been tried, but has anyone ever uh, associated or yoked a uh, artificial life organismic ecosystem with a, a, a biological ecosystem? Like, uh, say, a colony of mice, uh, where they're, uh, they're self-evolving learning strategies are, are learning from watching the living organisms. So has anything like that ever been done? Mice is an interesting example. Yeah. Certainly associated with um, going through mazes yeah. and things like that. There is a lot of crossover biology where what you're describing here is basically an algorithm that has the ability to see 50,000 mice go through a maze and then develop its own behavioural strategy through that. Yes, certainly that work has been done. Um, And it provides actually some very interesting paradoxes from being the person observing the mouse in the maze to actually being the mouse in the maze. And I think that's an interesting interesting thing to think about in terms of these simulations. Um, The Artificial Life 13 conference, there was a paper presented, and I approached the presenter following that, associated with what you could actually learn about the mouse's experience in the maze from providing the algorithm, you know, with the kind of top-down view of the mice. So, yeah, it's an interesting problem, and it's certainly the subject of some simulation. I was wondering, so uh, if you, following Moore's Law, uh, if we continue to extrapolate, uh, say about 25 years from now, um, if we have enough computational capacity to uh, simulate a uh, human brain according to all the proteins, to the enzymes, um, do you find that point, uh, and then that might be sooner if we have uh, distributed computing to some extent, but do you find that point, um, is it going to be that point, or do you find that it may be sooner because it needs to process less information as a complete virtual agent, or because it may, it may take longer, because now you have the entire distribution of information in the web that it has to handle? Uh, where exactly is that point? 
And then does it actually pass that point really fast, simply because, say, for example, our brains versus primates' brains, uh, say a monkey, there's really not that much difference in complexity, but it makes all the difference in the world in the, uh, how complex the organism is. Right? Uh, that's a great question. Hans Moravec uh, predicted, I think it was 2040, right? Um, he did the extrapolations, um, Moore's Law and what we think it would take, the compute power needed to do a, a brain, and predicted 2040, I think, is the year that uh, we would, that machines would begin to surpass the computational capacity of a human brain. Um, but I'm not sure exactly what assumptions he made in that. Ray Kurzweil has taken a stab at this sort of thing. Do either of you know when he's saying? 2020. 2020. 2029. Okay, it slipped nine years. So, uh, <laughs> um, actually, like four four cycles of Moore's law. That's a, it's a pretty big variance, really. A lot happens in that that time. Right, but the thing is, we still don't know. We know a ton about the brain. We're really getting better and better at it. But uh, there's a guy named Stuart Hameroff who, for twenty years or more, has been saying that um, all this stuff about neurons uh, and the way they integrate and fire is nonsense. What's really going on are quantum mechanical calculations in the, um, um, oh, ah, brain. I hate it when I lose words. The, huh? No, not in the synapses, in these little structures inside the cell that they are digital computers and that they are what matter. In fact, they're quantum digital computers, and that's what's going on. And, um, you know, I don't think so. Isn't I think the Roger Penrose. Uh, Penrose is on this road, too. Yeah. Yes. The, the yes. In fact, Penrose and Hammer have kind of gotten together on yeah. this. Yeah. And um, so far, most of the evidence looks like quantum effects are actually kind of a limiting effect on, on chemical interaction rates that they, that they put a limit on how fast things can happen in the cell. But maybe he's right. If he's right, then it's going to be a good deal longer than 2020 or 2029 or 2040. So we, we, it's one of those things we're not going to know until we have a significantly performing brain when it's going to, when we're going to succeed, I'm afraid. I have something to say about that as well, and that is that the one structure that we know does support general intelligence is the human brain, and it could well be that the human brain is way overbuilt for what is required for consciousness. Um, you know, this is, I think, uh, an example from, from Dawkins, but the human eye has got some really bizarre wiring to it, you know, with the, the nerves running out through the front of uh, the retinal nerves and then, and then into the, the blind spot. And if you were designing All the way that, to the back of the yeah, brain. If you were your, designing your visual that from scratch, back here. Yeah, the, yeah, with the visual center in the back of the brain. If you were designing that from scratch, you wouldn't do it that way. But evolution can't go back and design from scratch. It builds from what's already available, and it kludges things together. And they could be incredibly inefficient. And it could well be that once we understand what gives rise to consciousness, that his laptop computer could do it. We don't know that. I don't know that. But it could be the case. And there's the airplane versus bird argument that uh, it, it, we may very, you know, air, airplanes don't fly the way birds fly, uh, but they still fly. Uh, we may discover some of the underlying themes that drive consciousness, drive intelligence, and be able to implement them in an entirely different way. So Larry's taken my response perfectly. I'm going to do it privately because okay. people thinking I'm crazy. Okay. <laughs> Fair hey, enough. I stood up here and proved I am. So. <laughs> Physics a little bit, you know, and I've been studying that. Are you familiar with Bruce Lipton? Sure. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah. And so yeah. what if our perception is completely wrong and we've gone and created all this stuff 
based on something that's kind of an incorrect perception, mm -hmm. then it would make whatever you're doing be based on that. It wouldn't really come out right, would it? If it's kind of based on faulty stuff? Given the consequences of being wrong about this stuff, it's very important to consider all possibilities. And then what about, what about the, the, the observer having influence over the outcome? How does that fit in with what you guys are talking about? Because I'm completely unfamiliar yeah. with what you all are talking about. I, I think that's a general concern with all human action. Uh, I, don't, I don't know that it has a specific ramification in this discussion. If there is one, I mean, I'm open to it. As I say, the, the thing that I fear, the thing that I, I think is just the worst case outcome is that we create things that are capable of intense suffering and we don't recognize it. And uh, if, if there are you know, quantum effects, if there are uh, observer-dependent effects that give rise to this. I, I have no clue as to what they would be, but it's certainly something to, uh, to lose sleep over if you think it's a possibility. Microtubules, by the way. That's what Stuart Hamroff is on about. Um, so uh, I think it, we've all agreed that there's no such thing. Uh, intelligence is not binary. It's not like something's intelligence or it's not. So this idea that it's a spectrum is, is kind of interesting uh, and, that, and that you've measured it. You have this measure of segmentation and integration is, is kind of fascinating. What, is the, what was the, I was just wondering if you could speak a little more about that. What was, the, what was the, the purpose behind that? Was that like if we get to point eight, then we're conscious uh, or was it, uh, is there a similar consciousness measure that you have as well? We, we do seriously hope that something like that will be possible. There's a, a, one of the original authors of that TSE complexity, the T, Giulio Tononi, has also more recently uh, published a series of papers on what he calls phi which is this blend of graph theoretical and information theoretical measurement of the capabilities of a network. And the idea is that you could take a, a network design and poke at it in different ways, stimulate it, and read, read out information about it, and use turn that into a measure of just how much phi, I was going to say how complex, but, but he wants to cast it in terms of this new metric, but, but basically how complex his dynamics can be, and, use, and he states that at least there's a very good chance that a high enough level of phi will be a measure of consciousness. In fact, he even goes on to, to describe uh, sub-regions as, as representing um, you know, fundamental aspects of, of our thought. Um, Maybe. I would, I would ask you to perform this thought experiment. Suppose you have an entity who appears to be suffering and is asking for mercy. And then you have somebody who has a, a complex but seemingly cogent argument to support the notion that that thing has no feelings whatsoever and that you don't owe it anything. Um, the Cartesians... Followers of, of Rene Descartes, they used to vivisect animals. They used to nail dogs to walls and cut them open. And normal non-philosophers around them were aghast. And they thought this was horrible. And the sophisticated philosophers mocked the simpletons who thought that animals, who are just mechanisms, had the same interior life and sensations that we do. So um, for me, the question of what constitutes consciousness, if it doesn't jive with my immediate visceral intuition, 
I don't really care, even if it sounds really convincing. If somebody is arguing that this thing which exhibits behavior, which to me says pain, is not really in pain, I'm not interested. And I'd just like to add that um, uh, we don't have time. I could go on for a couple of hours upon uh, animal cognition and animal intelligence. And there is a profound degree of intelligence throughout the animal kingdom. Uh, it is exactly a spectrum. It, it's not just intelligent or not. It's not just alive or not. There's this amazing spectrum of intelligences and, and behaviors that you would recognize and that cognitive scientists recognize and say, yeah, yeah there's a theory of mind in the scrub jay. Um, so, yeah, okay, that's all. <laughs> Reading the title of this talk, was thinking it was something to do with people who basically spend their lives in the cloud or on the internet and that's their life socially or whatever and oh, and oh, you know which okay. is which is not what this is about but <laughs> could be but but well, is there a level a of that, you're talking about life and consciousness and computational power of the brain or machines so you could say that this Watson computer that IBM has that's doing incredible things of its own could be conscious but isn't there a factor that from our perspective of understanding what consciousness is that there's going to have to be some kind of a melding of organic with electronic or machine to get to this point of, of, of consciousness in a machine? I don't believe so. I, I um, think emulation of uh, so, biology. So if you have a machine, it, it would have to be able to reproduce. It would have to be able to, I mean, besides <laughs> the, you can say a plant is not consciousness, but it's alive. Yes, absolutely. You could say that, I mean, okay, this is science fiction just for a second. I mean, but we're talking about something that's sufficiently far in the future, we might as well consider it science fiction. I mean, if you, if you had a conversation with Data from Star Trek The Next Generation, um, or, or any android that you can sit and have a conversation with about, uh, you know, which of the Matrix films was your favorite, and, um, uh, which of the Star Wars films were not your favorite, and uh, you, I, I can't imagine you not thinking of this android as alive, and that it doesn't have to be able to reproduce itself. It might not even have a perfect schematic of its internal design. Um, there are a lot of the constraints that we normally think of as associated with a living being that don't necessarily apply. There are also a lot of capabilities for uh, sentience and, and consciousness that not all humans satisfy. And we still don't treat them as disposable objects because they can't do all the things that we think people should be able to do. And so it's, it seems, again, I mean, this, I'm beginning to repeat myself, but I think we, we just need to err on the side of caution and be nice to things, even if we're not entirely certain that they deserve that nice, behavior, you know, that nice treatment from us. You get people arguing that uh, we're blowing it by supporting weak members of society that let Darwin rule, and I just say Stephen Hawking. Yeah. You know, Tom, uh, we haven't heard from you in a while. So I, I wanted to I wanted to go back to the idea that we could have all gotten it wrong. 
because that's certainly something that I reflect on. And one of the things we haven't talked about here, although Cam, I mentioned it briefly, is this idea of emergence. And I think if you want to understand the artificial life community, and I've done a number of interviews aside from my own work, you need to appreciate that most artificial life developers, and maybe you've heard a little bit of this this evening, think of this emergence characteristic as really being their elixir. If there's anything that drives an artificial life developer, it's to create a simulation and then see things that you could never have possibly imagined when you first created the simulation. And this is an interesting property, particularly when you start thinking about whether we've gotten it all wrong. Because in that process, you have gotten it all wrong in some fundamental sense. You've started with a series of premises and you've reached a series of conclusions which are completely different than anything that you've actually programmed into the system. And I think it's one of the really interesting things about artificial life in particular, when this moves into, into the cloud, it will no doubt produce things that the original creators couldn't have originally determined. So if you like this format, if you've enjoyed yourself this evening, and if you would like to either participate or sit in with another one of these talks, please let me know, because I'd like to do this again. Uh, I know KMO is uh, space-limited, but Larry is, is a local. And there are a number of other folk that I'd like to get involved with this kind of discussion. So if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, or if you've wanted to ask a question, or if you reflect and think of a question after the fact, please do use our Meetup page as a kind of general description associated with what you've enjoyed and what you'd like to ask in the future, um, because I'd certainly like to hold another one of these things. And I think there is certainly a collective group in this part of the world that can maintain a wide variety of uh, topics along the lines of what we've discussed this evening. So thank you very much for your time. And, and thank all of you. There were, you know, great discussion, great, great questions.